sweet of him. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. This isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. This is Ross Coulthard, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy. Joining me on the podcast this week is UFO researcher and author, Chris Rutkowski. Glad to be here. Thanks. Chris, um, listen, it's been good to speak to you. We have uh, been looking forward to this after I spoke to Daniel Otis and we talked about the 20 years of uh, Canadian government's uh, declassifications. You were a part of that. You were mentioned in Daniel's Vice article and we're going to get to that. But first off, um, do you mind telling the listeners a little bit about your own background and growing up, what were your kind of first memories of UFOs? Hmm. Well, um, uh, my background is I've got uh, a degree in astronomy and a degree in education. Uh, I uh, try to make science understandable to the common person. Uh, I'm currently a science writer, uh, work for a university uh, to uh, sort of bring some of the research down to uh, earth, so to speak. In terms of UFOs, uh, back in the 1970s, yes, I'm that old, um, uh, there had been a, a number of flaps and, and waves in Canada, actually around the world. And uh, uh, I was curious when I started uh, in my astronomy classes at uh, the university, uh, because there were UFO reports coming in all the time to the department. Uh, common people were calling in and wanting to talk to an astronomer about what they were seeing. However, my Astronomy professors were not all that crazy about UFOs. They thought it was all nonsense and couldn't be bothered and was a waste of their time. Um, and since I was in their offices, uh, offices uh, quite often, um, uh, and the calls were coming, and I suggested offhandedly <clears throat> that you know I could take the calls for them. I, my little carol where I studied was right around the corner, and I could take the calls and talk to the people that would free their time up. They said sure. And next thing I know, I found myself talking to people all uh, all around the countryside who had seen UFOs. I went out uh, to their uh, their farms, their homes, uh, talking with them uh, and finding out that for the most part they were honest misidentifications, uh, things that you know, like uh, some stars and aircraft and so forth. But there were some cases that were puzzling. I, 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 you know, this wasn't a plane, this wasn't a star, I don't know what it was, and left it at that. And uh, uh, about a year and a half or so later, um, one thing that was common within the astronomy department, or actually within the physics department, uh, was that uh, there would be departmental uh, meetings and presentations every Friday afternoon, kind of to unwind. And somebody cancelled and my professor said, well, why, why don't you let Chris talk about the UFOs that uh, he's been hearing from people about? So I said, sure. And word got around I was going to be giving this presentation. And the next thing I know, I got a note saying that the presentation has been moved from the departmental boardroom to the largest lecture hall on campus, which was about 500 uh, seats. Um, and the public had been invited. 
and I found myself talking about UFOs uh, and became the UFO expert on campus. And uh, soon uh, I was asked to write about what I had heard and uh, uh, do more and more television appearances and so forth. And you now it sort of took on the rep of uh, the UFO guy. So you said that the professors weren't necessarily all that crazy about UFOs and the idea of it, but I take it there was quite a popularity for the subject amongst your your kind of fellow students, if that many people were interested. Was that the kind of feeling you got from them? Well, students and the general public, certainly, uh, the, this was uh, very common. Uh, there was, a, as I mentioned, a sort of a flap going on uh, in our area at the time uh, where many, many people had uh, been reporting to see UFOs. This is about the mid-1970s or so. And uh, uh, it was very common for people to uh, to want to talk with somebody, and the fact that I was willing to listen uh, really encouraged people to uh, to be a little more open and, and uh, gave them confidence in talking with me about what they had experienced. And how did that study of astronomy link in with your interest in UFOs? Was that the reason that you went into astronomy, or was it something that just went kind of nicely hand in hand? So I have to say I was interested in astronomy. I, I grew up... Uh, you know, watching the uh, the Apollo uh, landings, uh, and uh, even before that, I remember my parents sitting me in front of a television set, a black and white television set, watching John Glenn and and Mercury uh, uh, rockets, that type of thing. So I was fascinated with space, um, and and it was quite interesting that that astronomers are not necessarily the best people to study UFOs because they're really good about things that are very far away. But because uh, most UFOs are seen relatively close to the to the witness, in some cases just a matter of uh, you know uh, several meters away, um, that's not really the domain of astronomers whatsoever. But the topic, you know, because a lot of people assume that uh, UFOs may have something to do with aliens and extraterrestrials, uh, that is the domain of the astronomers. And my background in astronomy um, gives me the uh, the the training that allows me to to sort out things like stars and planets and uh, and other astronomical objects from the typical observation, but also um, the the knowledge that you know the the stars are very far away and if there's some planets out there with extraterrestrial life, those are very far away. And uh, I even took uh, some training in uh, in advanced propulsion uh, through some engineering uh, courses and. You know, it, it, it allows me to converse with some authority uh, on, you know, the possibility of extraterrestrial life and whether uh, things can actually travel here from there and vice versa. Now, at what point in your life was it was it in college, university or afterwards did this go from being somewhat of a hobby to a really serious part of your life? <laughs> well, um I guess it sort of blossomed uh, from the the time I I uh, started doing more writing. Um, I uh, started putting out a, a UFO zine uh, called the Swamp Gas Journal to uh, to talk about uh, some of what I had heard and found there was a willing audience for that. Uh, I began to enter into correspondence with other ufologists literally around the world, um, and. Um, I eventually started writing books. I think my first book was out sometime in the, hmm, hmm, hmm. Uh, I can't remember. I think my first book came out in the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, and since then I, I have, uh, my, 
tenth book uh, on UFOs and related phenomena coming out uh, sometime over the next few months. And uh, it, 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 it's a way of sharing my, my experience, what I've learned about uh, the subject with other people. And there is, a, a, I think, a, a willing audience for that. Uh, there's a lot of bad information out there, and I try to cut through some of that uh, using some scientific methodology, um, but also at the same time listening and trying to understand what people are talking about, not dismissing things out of hand like, like debunkers or skeptics. But um, I have to say, I do bring a, a rather skeptical eye to this, I'm more of a doubting Thomas, uh, but I'm very open-minded and uh, I have to shrug my shoulders and say, I don't know about some of the, uh, the things that people are seeing. And uh, I think we need more data and more research. And that's what I advocate. But because of my uh, association with science, I sometimes find myself as a liaison between uh, scientists and uh, the layperson uh, to try and bridge the gap, because I find that there, there's sometimes quite a, quite a chasm rather than just a gap. And uh, I think it's important that um, scientists often dismiss the subject off uh, offhandedly, uh, and yet there is a growing body uh, of scientists who are willing to talk about this. Actually, I was fortunate to have uh, a number of uh, uh, professors uh, over the years who encouraged me and, and would actually sit down and talk with me uh, about some of the ideas that I had about UFOs. And uh, they were actually quite open-minded and assisted me in, in many ways. And I guess in the 1970s and 80s, I got to know some of the major figures, uh, Alan Hynek um, and uh, Stan Friedman. They both spent time at my home. Uh, and I uh, met with them at uh, various meetings and conferences. And uh, it was fascinating to, to learn from them uh, at the same way that, uh, that some people now are, are learning in, in different ways. Now, I've seen you mention, uh, I read in one of your interviews, it was a, an article that the, uh, Canada was quite open in its investigation of UFOs with the Royal Canadian Air Force, Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the National Research Council all cooperating till around 1995. And then things moved to Transport Canada. What happened at that time that things moved over to that sort of one organization? And how did it change the reporting of, of UFOs? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. The um, Flying Saucers uh, had been investigated by uh, um, uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force uh, from about, well, I guess from the 40s into the 50s. Uh, and then somewhere in around the 60s, they wanted to get out of the flying saucer business. Uh, this paralleled what was going on in the United States. And uh, there was a discussion at a high level uh, of government to transfer the responsibility for this over to the National Research Council, uh, which is sort of Canada's national uh, government-run uh, science uh, uh, center and science uh, body. Um, and they did so with the understanding that, uh, in the opinion of these scientists, a lot of the UFOs that are being reported are meteors and fireballs, chunks of comets, and so forth. And there was a, a, a series of researchers who were fascinated with meteoritics, trying to, to get a hold of as many meteorites on the ground as possible. And the theory was that if somebody reported a UFO that turned out to be a, a meteor or a fireball, 
Um, you could probably find the meteorite on the ground that was responsible for creating that UFO if you had enough reports. So the National Research Council worked with the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, which of course had uh, departments right across the country, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police would actually investigate UFO reports on behalf of the government, on behalf of the National Research Council, uh, so that meteorites could be found. Uh, now, uh, first of all, they did actually find some meteorites this way, uh, but a lot of the UFO reports that the RCMP investigated were not meteors or fireballs, and they were something else, but they were called non-meteoric objects or non-meteoric incidents, and there's a separate file for that, and uh, it was the duty of an administrative uh, assistant in the National Research Council in Ottawa to duly take the phone calls, take the teletypes at that time, um, and the letters, um, and uh, filed them. And, and there was a very minimal investigation because these things were not of interest to the National Research Council at all, and filed them away in a drawer in a filing cabinet. They were then transferred to the National Library of Canada, where they kind of remained. Uh, and what happened was that in, uh, in about the early 1990s, um, the, uh, the National Research Council Meteoritics Division was, was sort of uh, disbanded because the, the National Research Council was more interested in the Canadian Space Agency side. They actually were responsible for creating the Canadarm that's on the, that was on the space shuttle and, uh, and now on the station. Uh, so they were getting out of that, and yet the UFO reports were still coming in from the public and from um, military and, and police and so forth. Um, so they had to get out of that, and there was actually a line item in their budget for this administrative assistant to do so. Uh, so they wanted to get to stop that, and I happened to be in Ottawa doing some, uh, some of my own research and ended up speaking with uh, a number of people from the National Research Council. And uh, one person in particular, his name was Peter Millman, uh, who was uh, involved in, uh, in some of the UFO work uh, as, a, as a skeptic and a debunker, of course. Um, and uh, he said, I don't know what we're going to do with all these reports that continually come in. And I said, well, you can always give them to me, sort of half-jokingly. And, um, uh, and then somewhere around 1995, the RCMP and uh, the National Research Council, Research Council terminated their agreement and shifted away. And then somewhere in about uh, the year 2000, uh, I began receiving the UFO reports that people were uh, submitting uh, to the government. And I continued to receive them uh, until close to the present day. Now, how have you seen the Canadian public's attitude change towards UFOs over the years? Because you're saying you've you've been involved now since the 70s in this subject and with the books, you know, like I say, with that relationship you've had with the investigations and up until now, almost recently getting those reports. Have you seen a massive shift in the, the general way the subject's treated? Um, I'd have to say there have been some shifts, some some different characteristics. One of the things I began doing uh, as I got further involved in the research was uh, in the late 1980s, I started collecting uh, as many UFO reports from across Canada as possible to try and get a better picture of what was really being seen, um, because there hadn't really been a, a good study of what what the, the characteristics of uh, UFO sightings really were. I mean, we could you could see what was on reported on the news on television or in the tabloid uh, newspapers and 
and some magazines. But what were people really reporting? And I had a sample of that because I had access to uh, some of the National Research Council reports. I had been in Ottawa going through the National Library. I knew what a UFO report really looked like. Um, and uh, Alan Hynek and uh, Stan Frieden both encouraged me to, to uh, pursue this a little bit more. So I, I created what was called the Canadian UFO Survey. Uh, and I collected, uh, you know, working with my colleagues and other researchers and, you know, adding in the government reports as well, a snapshot every year of what uh, UFO sightings look like every year. So there, in the first year, I think there are only about 150 or so reports uh, that uh, that were actually obtained. Uh, that number gradually increased to the point where somewhere in the, uh, after the year 2000, um, we're starting to get somewhere around 1,000 UFO reports every year in Canada from all sources. And uh, that remained fairly uh, significant, fairly consistent until probably a few, about five years ago when it started to decline somewhat. And of course, the pandemic just threw everything off. But um, during those years, we saw things like um, the, sh the shape, the characteristics of the, the reported UFOs changed from uh, the disc to triangles, to more uh, just simply lights and, and balls of light in the sky. Um, uh, people started uh, being uh, more willing, I think, to talk about their experiences, uh, although they're still quite hesitant to report. I mean, there have been some studies done on uh, on polling and surveys of the Canadian public, as, as there have been in other countries. Um, in fact, we uh, conducted a, a poll of uh, Canadians on their beliefs in UFOs, which aligned very well with other polling companies around uh, the world, like Gallup in North America and um, uh, and a few others, where about 10% of the, the population believe that they've seen a UFO. And that percentage actually has remained fairly consistent um, across the decades, which is quite interesting because it suggests there's a very persistent uh, uh, belief. Um, and the characteristics of themselves, of the UFOs themselves, I mentioned the shape, um, color has, uh, you know, changed from oranges and reds to more just a uniform white. Uh, but one thing that has always come out was that it's usually not just one person who reports seeing the UFO, it's usually somebody who's with another person. So in other words, somebody sees a UFO and then elbows the, the person next to him and says, hey, do you see what I see? Uh, and that's quite interesting because it, it, it suggests that uh, it's not just one person's imagination. It suggests that there's two people who are sharing the experience. So um, by studying the actual data, what people really are reporting and seeing, and that's something that's possibly lost in ufology today, uh, you do get a better sense of what the phenomenon really represents. Do you think there's an, a, a chance then that the, the numbers of true sightings could be even higher that if you're with someone you've got that second source to say i did see this you know you're looking at what i'm looking at but if i'm out on my own i'm less likely to report that because it's just me oh so you saw it on your own yep anyone else nope got any pictures or videos nope so you just you tend not to report it so do you think the true number what 10 percent of canadians report seeing a ufo what what could that true percentage look like do you think well, uh, you know, we actually have asked that question too of the of the people who had seen a, a UFO. Uh, we also asked, uh, "Did you report it?" 
And, uh, and of course, this number has been coming out of polls. Uh, I mean, even Stanton Friedman would poll his audiences, for example, on the same thing. Uh, all those with uh, who've seen a UFO, raise your hands. Now, of those of you who raised your hands, did you report it? And only about 5 to 10% of them actually reported it. So we're probably missing at least 90% of all the, uh, uh, the UFO sightings that are, that are actually experienced by people. Uh, have you had your own sightings, Chris? You know, no, um, but I'll have a little asterisk there um, that I've been out to many places uh, right across Canada and the United States um, to places where UFO hotspots where I never saw anything. Uh, but when I was in Ottawa going through the, uh, the, uh, the, the National Library uh, and its files of UFOs, uh, I came across my own UFO report, which I had completely forgotten about because it was in, um, I'm guessing 1980-something, 80, 81, where I was coming home from investigating some UFOs, and I saw a light in the sky, and I thought, oh, you know, uh, that you know, this is how UFO reports are generated. Uh, and I watched it for a while, and it was a, a, a red light that was moving across the horizon, and uh, very low to the ground and then disappearing. So I thought, I wonder if I should report this and see what happens. So I actually reported my own UFO report, uh, my own UFO sighting to the National Research Council and forgot all about it. Nobody followed up with me. Nobody got back to me. Um, but then when I was going through the, uh, the historical cases, I came across a report from Chris Rakowski in the file and uh, it, you know, it verifies what I had suspected, that nothing was being done with the uh, UFO sightings because uh, no one in the government was particularly interested in this, this group of, uh, this body of uh, reports. And on, on those files that have just been released recently, there was the 20 years worth of UFO files. You, you mentioned before that you had a relationship that you were receiving these reports almost directly. There was a, a, a note to send them on to you, uh, essentially. How exactly, again, did that come about? That you, you said you jokingly said, you know, well, just send them to me. But I'm sure anyone else trying that on with any kind of official bodies, that <laughs> they wouldn't get that far. Was there anything else in the process that happened that you end up getting all these reports? Well, as I mentioned, I was in the, the National Research Council at the Hertzberg Institute for Astrophysics doing research. I was a known entity, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I was still at university uh, conducting research, and I had an interest in this, and I was speaking to the individuals who were getting the UFO reports, and the, there was a, an impetus at that time to, for the government to, uh, to slough off the UFO business onto somebody else. Curiously... Um, uh, this actually happened uh, two previous times. In the 1960s, uh, a UFO researcher, civilian UFO researcher named Bill Allen uh, was asked by the government to uh, investigate UFOs on their behalf and pass along any information if they had uh, you know, anything interesting uh, was reported to them. Um, and then uh, another civilian investigator by the name of Arthur Bray, whose uh, own archives uh, and files are uh, at the University of Ottawa now, um, also uh, got involved and had a relationship with uh, the government of Canada. Um, and so there, there's kind of was a history of the government of Canada selecting a few people here and there uh, to assist them in this, uh, in their research, because they, they really didn't have the expertise 
um, and the the interest in the subject. So uh, they were more than glad uh, when I came along and uh, uh, and you know half jokingly suggested they could send the reports to me. And, um, and I took that responsibility quite seriously, despite the the fact I had uh, I had said it partly in jest. But I was fascinated to see exactly what was being reported. And um, uh, by taking it seriously, I realized I was uh, getting uh, information from witnesses whose names and and, and uh, phone numbers and addresses were confidential, and uh, took that responsibility uh, quite seriously. Uh, that I uh, I was trusted. And uh, I wasn't going to dash off to the uh, Daily Mail or the New York Times uh, uh, waving UFO reports, uh, uh, shouting the aliens are here or anything like that. I wanted to know from a scientific point of view what was being seen. And the vast majority of the reports I was getting, and I have to say, there's not that many, really, uh, out of uh, the 1,000 cases every year uh, in Canada, uh, there couldn't have been more than uh, a dozen or so. Uh, that came through government sources. So it was a very small percentage. But of the ones that came in, and you can see this by looking at the uh, the cases that Daniel Otis uh, uh, obtained, for the most part, they were stars, planets, aircraft, kites, balloons, and, and so forth. Uh, the typical one, uh, report that I would get would be sometimes a uh, an email from uh, uh, somebody in national defense saying we received a report from the Canadian Forces base at Trenton, for example, uh, from a civilian who said that uh, that she watched a, um, a stationary star-like light for three or four hours hanging in the sky, and uh, you know, f- you know that certainly in in the case I just mentioned, you know, sounds like a star or planet, and I would verify that it certainly was. So. Uh, the most of the incidents weren't all that interesting. And if you, if you go through um, the 290 pages that were said to be disclosed and given and released by the government, they had already been public before for the most part. In fact, um, of the 290 uh, pages of documents, uh, 30 of them were a list of 500 cases that came from Transport Canada of pilot incident reports, which all were public. Um, and uh, we had seen many times before, and most of the other uh, 260 pages, there were only 100, and I think I counted 115 separate reports, um, and of those, all but 13 were simply um, reports expanding on the ones that had already been made public, uh, and of the 13 uh, from National Defense and and uh, and some other uh, 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 official sources. Uh, we had already had, I think, ten or nine or ten of those. So there are only three or four that we hadn't seen before. Um, so I mean, Daniel did a, f- a fantastic job, and he's been really good since he broke onto the UFO scene a few years ago of of being able to uh, get some uh, access to information uh, requests filed and, and obtaining documents, but. The ones that came from this 290 page or 290 pages of documents were really not that interesting, and they weren't really disclosure at all, because they had already been public, and they were simply obtained through access to information requests. So that to me, that's not really disclosure. However, what it does say is that even that list of 500 uh, cases that we had already known about, filed by pilots for the most part, um, suggests that. Uh, you know, there are a lot of 
cases every year of pilots reporting unusual objects in the sky and uh, reporting them through air traffic controllers, through national defense and, and so forth. And furthermore, buried within that are notes that NORAD, uh, the, the, uh, the defense system from uh, that Canada uh, is partnered in, with the United States, um, is actively uh, involved, is, is passed to this information, and in some cases makes reports themselves. So it, it shows that there is uh, some, uh, some interest and some, um, you know, not necessarily investigation, because I'm not convinced that there's a lot of investigation going on, but there is a lot of work being, being curious about the, uh, the subject within Canada. Billionaire John Caldwell once said, If I'm lucky, I only get recruitment wrong 70% of the time. But how is it we accept being wrong so much of the time? With the cost of finding the right match for both people and organisations so high, it's imperative that you choose the right team to help you on that path. Recruitix is one of the fastest growing recruitment companies in the UK. With an expert team of dedicated, passionate, high experienced professionals, they are the perfect choice to make sure you get it right, first time, every time. With a range of departments covering almost all sectors, it doesn't matter if you need a highly specialised IT professional, a boots-on-the-ground salesperson, accountant, mechanical engineer, or anything else, they have the expert team in-house to ensure you find the resources you need. As a friend of the podcast, they will offer all new organisations wanting to give them a try heavily discounted fees to 10% of per annum salary, representing an enormous saving compared to the rest of the market. Just visit recruitix.co.uk, that's recruitix.co.uk, leave your details, tell them the podcast sent you, and one of the expert team will be in touch. Now, you mentioned that the Canadian pilots reporting these objects as well. We have heard there are reports of, you know, US Navy um, servicemen and women potentially having tic-tacs 50 feet off the wing of their planes at times now we don't have the the proof of that necessarily yet is there anything potentially that sensational almost or that makes you stop and read it twice and in terms of reporting that canadian pilots are coming up with well yeah i mean there are there are a number of interesting uh, reports um uh, we're just in the process of uh, finishing up the 2021 canadian ufo survey not quite ready yet but very soon uh, which uh, you know again compiles all the cases in Canada uh, that were uh, that were reported, and some of the more interesting ones include some pilot reports. In fact, there's one if I'm trying to remember off the top of my head um, of a pilot who was flying from Alaska to Minneapolis and was over uh, a part of Canada. Hence, it was made as a UFO report, but it was an American pilot, um, and the pilot. Uh, radioed to air traffic control, can you tell me what is in the sky above us right now? Because there's something that's that's uh, above us and we're flying at, I think, something like 39,000 feet. And the air traffic control said, no, there's nothing there. And the pilot said, well, I have no idea what this is either. So we have cases like that um, that are reported. Um, and it suggests that pilots themselves are seeing some curious things. And one would imagine that pilots with many hours of training, in some cases tens of thousands of hours of, of flight, um, you know, would know what's in the sky. Now, pilots do make mistakes, and, and a lot of uh, debunkers make this point. That's absolutely true. 
I would also make the point that uh, pilots of airliners um, uh, carrying, you know, hundreds of passengers, if they're reporting things that are uh, in the sky that they can't identify that may pose a, a danger to uh, air safety. Uh, furthermore, uh, some of the cases involve radar detection and transponders that seem to indicate things that are there when there's nothing there. If there's a problem with the technology, with the equipment, with the electronics, that implies a, a safety issue with regards to air travel as well. So uh, I would mm -hmm. suggest that even if uh, UFOs are something relatively mundane uh, and not necessarily alien, the fact that, um, you know, if uh, pilots are reporting these things and uh, there could be something wrong with the equipment or the, you know, things flying into the flight paths of, of airliners, to me, that's worth investigating. So uh, whether you believe UFOs are alien or not, I think the subject is something that should be taken more seriously and reports should be investigated more thoroughly at a higher level. I think the governments should Governments, not just United States and Canada, but certainly Britain and France and, and others, should be uh, taking a, a harder and closer look at uh, what people are reporting. You mentioned you were receiving the reports up until quite recently, I believe mid-2021, they sort of stopped. Is that correct? And if so, do you think that may be a sign that the Canadian government, well, they will have appreciated, no doubt, what you've done, are taking this more in-house to take a closer look at the subject? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I, um, uh, things seem to, uh, to trickle down um, in, in numbers around the time that, uh, well, people like Daniel Otis uh, was actually filing uh, access information requests about UFOs. Now, people have been filing these types of requests all along, but there seems to be, um, you know, when people are filing more and more requests, and I, I think they have said that the number of requests has risen exponentially. Um, but also because of the uh, the interest recently from the United States, and I think overall, at a higher level, there's more of an interest, uh, and perhaps the governments are taking a higher interest. And while uh, civilians have been filling the role of investigators for quite some time, uh, you know, uh, even Alan Hynek, for example, was uh, was technically a civilian, uh, and after he left uh, the Air Force, he was continuing with the Center for UFO Studies and. Uh, was still heavily involved with UFOs, but he was outside of, of uh, the government inst institutions after that point. So I, I think with the advent of um, you know more interest in the subject, plus the fact that, and rightly so, I think the government probably said, well, why are we exactly sending UFO reports to a civilian? And I actually have had that, that question uh, asked of me uh, uh, years ago uh, by military officers. Uh, I, I think that's probable that uh, they are taking things a little more seriously. However, I will point out that uh, there's an organization called NAV Canada, which is a civilian organization, uh, which is actually the the uh, the uh, institution that is receiving UFO reports from pilots that passes them along to Transport Canada, which is the government institution in Canada. Um, NAV Canada may have an investigative body and they're exempt from access to information requests. Uh, I know a number of people are trying to get access to those uh, cases and it remains to be seen whether, uh, whether they, that will be forthcoming. You obviously mentioned uh, just before that like, the United States uh, has been quite 
very much on the front foot in terms of the UFO subject recently, that can look nefarious or it can look like a good thing. Who knows, depending on which side of the conspiracy fence you fall down on. However, what are your thoughts on the US having a somewhat transparent UFO office in the background? What what are your thoughts on that? Well, I find that unlikely. Um, Canada has been far more transparent than the United States. In fact, after Blue Book, we've had really no information uh, about what's been going on in the United States with regard to either civilian uh, reports to the government or military reports to the government. Uh, a few people like Paul Dean and others have done a tremendous job in, in locating reports uh, uh, during those intervening years between 1970 and now. But for the most part, it's been kind of a black hole. Whereas in Canada, National Research Council uh, reports had been sent to the National Library. And then after they finished in 1995, I started getting them uh, myself. And, and I, I will point out, too, that I've been sharing uh, and posting a lot of the reports that I've been getting through the government, um, either on my own blog or in Facebook or uh, sharing them with other researchers directly. So uh, it's not like uh, those reports are disappearing. I, in fact, I've been including them in the Canadian UFO survey every year. So the information that's contained is is still pretty complete for Canada. But the United States is another uh, issue. And uh, ever since we found out from the New York Times article that w- there was a UFO program in the United States from you know, 2007 to 2012 or something like that, uh, and there probably is still a, a, a program going on, um, the fact that uh, they've been very, very less than transparent, very opaque, um, suggests that uh, we're not going to be finding out very much anytime soon. In fact, after the uh, UAP task force issued its report uh, some time ago, many months ago now, um, we really haven't got much information. John Greenwald, uh, you know, found the declassified or somewhat declassified version uh, very recently, and uh, that's, yeah. been, that's been made available, and he's done a tremendous job. Great for John to do that. Uh, but we still don't have a, a good handle on what's really been going on. Um, and I have a lot of questions. Uh, you know, we don't have details on the cases that were referred to in, uh, in that report. Um, I also have a question as to what the reporting procedure is right now. If a civilian reports, uh, wants to report a UFO in the United States to uh, the government, there doesn't seem to be a mechanism to do that. If a military pilot in Bismarck, North Dakota, sees a UFO, is there actually a mechanism in place to report that to the Navy, the Air Force, um, some other organization? We simply don't know. Um, and it's strange because Blue Book um, was very effective because it had uh, the ability to send directives to all uh, American Air Force bases and, and other countries as, as well around the world with instructions on how to investigate and, and could get its tentacles kind of all all around the world to try and get the UFO reports. It was very effective. And it's hard to imagine that even though, according to the task force report, it's said that there is no mechanism in place to do so. um, That's very puzzling because in Canada, um, there is a mechanism. Uh, In fact, um, there are reports sent to me from NORAD um, from the Canadian side, certainly, and certainly passed on to the, to the United States. In fact, there was even back when faxes were a thing, um, there was a, a fax cover sheet that was clearly labeled UFO report uh, that accompanied the UFO reports. 
um, from uh, that were passed through NORAD. So somebody was getting these cases. And so for the UAP task force to have this uh, comment that uh, there was no mechanism in place, they didn't know exactly how to go about it, that sounds a little strange to me. And and uh, that implies that there's much less transparency than than there should be. As we record this, it's the 27th of March, and today was the last day that the mandated 90-day uh, update was due for Congress. So there should have been that briefing report, whatever it was going to be in the background, obviously classified. It wasn't anything that should be expected to, to be made public. But if there's any chance of anything coming out from that, we would hope to hear or see something in the next week or two, but highly unlikely. However, we can always live in hope, I suppose. Um do you hope to see Canada and the United States, at least given their proximity to each other, given that NORAD relationship, work closely on the UFO issue? Well, I would hope so. Um, uh, because of the, uh, the close association, we have, there's many cases on record uh, where there were joint, um, uh, uh, joint investigations or joint uh, works by Canada and the United States involving UFOs. There was a, a famous case in Falcon Bridge, Ontario, where uh, some UFOs were seen by some radar personnel and people on the ground at uh, uh, a Canadian Forces base in Ontario. Um, and uh, uh, some Air Force jets from the United States uh, were sent to uh, fly over the area to investigate. So there, there, we know that there had been the, uh, this cooperation in the past. Uh, there's no question that uh, Canada does work closely uh, with the United States and, and always has. In fact, uh, some of the early cases uh, that we have in Canada come from the United States Air Force bases uh, that were on Canadian soil. Um, and uh, uh, we do know there was a case, oh, I'm trying to remember now whether it was seven, eight, nine years ago now, of a, um, uh, of a United States Air Force refueling mission um, in northern Canada, uh, where the uh, somebody on board had reported a UFO, and because it was on Canadian soil, that's how we we found out about it. But it was an American craft uh, uh, air, air, uh, aircraft that reported it, so that must have gone into uh, some sort of American repository. Uh, so there there is some cooperation. We don't know the uh, the level to which it might be existing, but uh, we we assume it's there. Just before we get to listener questions, Chris, I want to ask, what do you think right now, given your expertise and your, your decades of research, is the best explanation or explanations for the phenomenon people are witnessing? Well, I mean, we have to say at the outset that most cases uh, either have explanations or we don't have enough information for explanations. In fact, the task force report we were referring to, people make a big deal about the 143 cases or something uh, that were unexplained. That's actually not what the task force says. It says they simply didn't have enough information uh, to uh, give a full explanation for all except one case, which they determined was definitely a deflating balloon. The other 443 were not unexplained, as some people say. They are actually simply, uh, they couldn't pinpoint an exact explanation for what it was, though they certainly had their their uh, their ideas. That's similar to what we have for the bulk of UFO data. Every year, the Canadian UFO Survey 
looks at as as I mentioned, you know, somewhere around 1,000 cases. Uh, I'll give you a spoiler alert. It's much lower than that uh, for 2021. Um, but uh, of those, a very small percentage are what we call high-quality unknowns. Uh, the vast majority either have possible explanations, insufficient information, or in fact explanations. Um, and so if you apply that across the board, um, you do end up with a fairly significant number um, in, uh, in the Canadian UFO survey where somewhere around 23,000 separate UFO reports now uh, over the past 30 years. Um, and um, uh, even if, let's say, 1% of all those are high-quality unknown cases, uh, it adds up to uh, to dozens and dozens of interesting cases that probably uh, deserve some explanation. Now, my background in astronomy tells me that it's very unlikely that uh, that an alien civilization is sending a craft here. Um, I'm quite quite aware of the uh, psychosocial explanations, um, uh, Earthlight's phenomena. Um, uh, I, I, I I've read about the, the various interdimensional time travel theories and so forth. Um, the scientist in me says, nah, but at the same time, we simply don't know. Uh, and it's uh, actually scientific to simply shrug our shoulders and say, we're not sure uh, what this may represent. The possibility is there that there are aliens out there. Um, it's uh, also possible that Somewhere um, uh, in our galaxy, uh, an extraterrestrial civilization has developed uh, ways of traveling through space in a way that we don't understand yet. Not breaking the laws of physics, uh, but bending them in some way that we don't understand. Um, but we don't have any evidence of how that's possible. We don't have any proof. Um, so we don't have proof that aliens are here. The sightings of, of witnesses by themselves uh, are simply not enough. Uh, and we maybe have to be the ultimate doubting Thomases, and uh, I'm perfectly willing to put my hand in the side of, uh, of a, an alien. What always gives me hope in that respect, Chris, that especially when people ask me about, well, why would these things be coming potentially great distances if they're not from different realities, dimensions, all those sorts of possibilities? Why would they be coming here? And I was you as well. Right now, as, as advanced as we are technologically, we'll be incredibly far further down the line in a hundred years, two hundred years. But right now, that one of the peaks of our technological, you know, achievements has been we've got our little robot on Mars that runs around every so often, going a very short distance, and it's got a little helicopter on it that every so often flies up and goes ten feet and then comes back and collects samples and data. Which, if you were on Mars, and I'm not saying there are people on Mars, but if you were there witnessing that, that would look crazy and would make no sense. And you would probably think, why would some advanced species send a robot here with another little robot on top of it? And if someone had 500 years or a thousand years head start on us as a civilization, it's not a great leap to think, what would their drones look like? What would their rovers look like? And would they be tic tacs and cigars and triangles flying about in our skies and oceans? So that always gives me a little bit of hope when I when I think of that potentially in those great distances that might be getting traversed. Absolutely, and I think it's very possible. Um, and uh, you know, we we might not even be able to recognize uh, a visit from an alien. Uh, it's it's certainly possible. Mm. But what we can say is that so far, with our understanding of 
physics and biology and and uh, uh, our understanding of um, observational techniques and and uh, observational capabilities of humans and their interpretations that are affected by biases and psychological and psychosocial uh, factors, we simply don't have uh, enough to say it's definitely happening. But hey, you know, we live in the Steven Spielberg of the James Cameron universe, and uh, uh, we expect that aliens are out there. Uh, in fact, I think most people would be disappointed if they aren't. Uh, people sometimes point to the Drake equation, which calculates uh, how many alien civilizations there might be in our uh, our galaxy. And uh, depending on what uh, uh, numbers you plug into the equation, you either get that there are uh, tens of thousands of alien civilizations out there just waiting to contact us, or none whatsoever. And uh, uh, the limiting factor is something called the lifetime of a civilization. If there are civilizations out there, what happens to them? How come we don't see uh, any evidence of them? Well, it's very possible that after a certain period of, of uh, development, something happens to the civilization that perhaps stops them from developing further. Let's hope that's not happening. <laughs> yeah, we're not on the cusp of anything, hopefully, in that sense. Do you know what? I'm actually disappointed in myself, Chris. I've left off a question. Given your background and given what's happening at the minute in terms of astronomy, the, the James Webb Telescope is, isn't too far off of being fully functional. What are mm. your hopes for the, the James Webb and what that can achieve, and what are we going to see in those early days? Yeah, it's it's really quite something. Um, and of course, it's designed to look very, very far. It's not designed to look, you know, for the you know remnants of the Big Bang and so forth, but for something a little bit closer to us, uh, you know, just uh, being shielded from... Uh, the Earth's radiation is is going to be enough to be able to resolve things very much better. Um, it's going to be able to possibly see um, uh, planets around stars that are relatively close to us, and be able to uh, you know to detect uh, using some various instruments uh, some of the spectrometry involved of of the atmospheres of of some of these distant planets, and that's really quite exciting because. We might be able to uh, to verify that uh, you know some nearby uh, stars have planets that could support life and maybe are supporting life, and that's actually quite exciting. Uh, um, you know, speaking of uh, James Cameron, the next uh, uh, movies in his series, um, uh, what are the ones about the the blue skinned aliens again? Oh, Which one? Are Avatar. Avatar. Yeah, two and three are coming out. And Avatar takes place on a moon surrounding, uh, that's orbiting a planet uh, near Proxima Centauri. And, you know, it's very possible that such a planet and such a moon may actually exist. So it could be that James Cameron has effectively predicted what the James Webb telescope is going to discover. I wasn't a fan of the Avatar movie, so hopefully the the advancements and the achievements of the James Webb are more exciting than that, that yeah, Avatar are, film. Yeah. I wasn't a fan. Um, listen, let's go on to listener questions in the time we have less, Chris. Uh, first up, uh, Gnosis asks, is Chris aware of any Canadian sightings where the witness was later visited by government officials? If so, is there any indication they were US or Canadian officials or a combination of the two working together? Yeah, there's quite a few cases like that. Um, I know that the uh, Falcon Lake case of 1967 
the witnesses were interrogated by the Royal Canadian Air Force uh, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And actually, the United States Air Force sent uh, uh, up somebody uh, from uh, the Condon Committee to uh, to interview the witnesses as well. Um, uh, so over the years, there have been instances like that. In recent times, uh, not that I've heard. Uh, in fact, it does seem like the, uh, the, the government has sort of uh, left the actual investigation to uh, civilians. However, as I mentioned, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police investigated UFO cases up until 1995. Uh, so there are many instances like that. Next up was Jean. Jean asks, does Chris know how closely Canadian officials coordinate or cooperate with the Americans on the subject, especially with NORAD? Well, we alluded to this earlier that, yeah, Canada and the United States are partners in NORAD. Um, and uh, I think there's absolutely no question that uh, uh, there is some uh, some coordination. In fact, a lot of the UFO reports uh, that you can see through the National Research Council, and even more recently, there's usually a note that says this was sent to NORAD. In fact, in the case, uh, the uh, the ones from Transport Canada that were made public uh, from the the set that uh, Daniel Otis got through Vice or for Vice. Um, uh, there's a lot of references to NORAD was being advised of, of this particular case or that particular case. So I think there is some significant coordination. Um, from Gary, how does a person become a UFO researcher, either off their own back or within a governmental department? Uh, he's unsure which you fall into. I think it would be off your own back, it, it definitely <laughs> from a starting point of view. Um, he gets the hobby first, but the second, how do you go into the civil service and then UFO researcher becomes potentially full-time employment? Yeah, you know, in terms of full-time employment, I'm not full-time employed uh, investigating UFOs. I'd like to be. The only person I think who actually was full-time employed investigating UFOs was Stan Friedman. He made his living uh, going to conferences and speaking about them. Um, uh, even Alan Hynek, um, you know, even though he's employed by the United States Air Force uh, on the various projects, he was a, an astronomer. In fact, uh, I used his textbook uh, in astronomy in my first year of uh, my uh, astronomy education. Um, so he, he, you know, primarily uh, uh, had a day job just like everybody else. I would recommend if somebody wants to get into ufology, do your reading, do your background reading. And I don't mean uh, Facebook and YouTube. I'm, I'm talking, you know, do the research uh, on what's going on, what has happened before. Uh, I, I run into people and, and talk with them all the time who are new to ufology, who have not read anything by you know, some of the classics uh, of the field, nothing by Jenny Randalls, nothing by Coral and Jim Lorenzen. They haven't read um, uh, anything by Edward Ruppelt um, and nothing by uh, James, uh, by uh, Alan Hynek. So I think you have to do your, uh, your research. You'd ha if you're going to any field, you'd have to do a historical study, uh, regardless of whether you're going into biology or sociology or uh, ufology. Um, and then I would suggest, you know, getting a, a job that you enjoy, but uh, one that uh, gives you the freedom to pursue your hobbies uh, in the evenings or on weekends. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, talk with like-minded people, uh, go to conferences and, and so forth. I think it's important to, to immerse yourself uh, in the field. 
Uh, next up from Curious Doc, uh, regarding the First People uh, Indigenous Communities in Canada, have you found any compelling overlap with their tradition and folklore or their more recent account in any recent institutional scientific data or reports you've seen? Well, you know, as I would say with, on any continent, um, the Indigenous connection to UFOs exists in some way. Um, and I um, was an advisor and I was on screen for um, two seasons of a program called Indians and Aliens, not my title, um, Indians and Aliens, produced by uh, the Aboriginal Television Network uh, here in Canada, uh, which um, uh, delved into uh, UFO sightings and experiences by Indigenous people uh, in Quebec, and then later in the second season uh, elsewhere uh, in Canada. Um, and uh, it was interesting to, you know, meld the two uh, uh, traditions uh, uh, so that we better understood what people were experiencing. And I think there is a, a strong connection. Um, and today, one of the things we don't gather is the, uh, um, uh, is the ethnicity or the heritage of people who are reporting UFOs. Um, uh, and it's hard to say whether that would gather information, but gather good information or not. But we do know that we do get reports from all across Canada, including the far north, where uh, Inuit uh, people are, uh, are reporting UFOs. Uh, we have reports from uh, First Nations across Canada. Uh, so there's no question that, uh, that as witnesses and interpretations uh, follow from a lot of the UFO reports that we've been receiving. A question from a fellow Canadian here, Ward. Um, who in the Canadian government is on our side, so to speak? Do we have any local equivalents of a Senator Gillibrand, who's obviously making some waves in the UFO community uh, in the Senate right now? Well, quite recently, um, uh, a member of Parliament named Larry Maguire, um, uh, he uh, asked a question in a committee of the Senate. Oh, no, not the Senate, of the of, of, uh, Parliament, Parliamentary, Parliamentary Committee itself um, on natural resources, um, asking about uh, UAP that were seen over uh, nuclear installations in Canada. He had actually contacted me um, oh, a year or more ago uh, for, uh, to give him a briefing on my UFO research. Uh, and because uh, he's, he's interested in the subject. And now that he's gone public with uh, this request, um, there is a, a standing uh, request for information that he was requested of the Deputy Minister for Natural Resources about the actions and, and any investigations of uh, UAP uh, in Canada. Uh, now, the Canadian UFO survey, because I mentioned we have 23,000 cases, uh, we can actually pinpoint, according to the geographical locations, uh, where some of the uh, UFO reports are from. And I think um, from one nuclear institution alone, simply by the location, uh, we have something like 50 just for one uh, nuclear inst installation. Now, whether that means that the UFOs were interested in that installation or simply because that's the nearest geographical location to where a UFO was, was reported, you know, that's something that has to be determined. But uh, uh, certainly Larry Maguire is, is one who has come forward. Um, certainly UFOs have been brought up uh, in the Canadian Parliament uh, a number of times. Um, and uh, it remains to be seen whether anything comes of Larry Maguire's request. 
Excellent. Interesting one to keep an eye on. Um, Kevin Brackley asks, we know the Canadian military and NAV Canada have been collecting UFO reports for decades. What do you what do you think they think about UFOs? Do they see them as a threat, an interest or an anomaly to be noted and then ignored? I think um, they're decidedly disinterested and probably annoyed at the paperwork that UFOs and UAP cause. Um I, I get the imp- I've got the impression that they're not all that interested. I mean, why else would they, you know, pass along UFO reports to a civilian? Um, but I, I think the fact that more and more pilots are reporting, and pilots have always reported UFO reports, uh, uh, pilot their UFO sightings. We have many many cases on file. But I think the fact that there there seems to be an awareness now and a a push for more and more uh, pilots to report them even though the number of pilot reports seems to be going down uh, right now in Canada, um, I think that there's a, a concerted interest in, in keeping more track of this, and whether it's a matter of defense, uh, airline safety and security, or something else, I'm not sure. But I, I think that overall the, that uh, the government has been generally uninterested, which is quite interesting in itself. Going to finish off with a couple of listener questions from longtime listener Dave Smedhurst. Um, he says, given that the US and Canada jointly run NORAD, have you had any indication the Canadian government is aware of the regular incursions from space objects seemingly under intelligent control that credible retired US military sources report having observed on a daily basis? Do you think if these were happening as reported, the Canadian government or military would be aware of it? I think that incursions are part of everyday life um, in the Canadian military. Um, and I doubt whether uh, there are a lot of incursions that, uh, that fall under the category of what most people think are UAPs. Um, there are regular flights and incursions by um, foreign powers into Canadian and North, uh, and North American airspace all the time, and they're acted upon immediately. Uh, in fact, you can do a literature search of uh, uh, of news uh, reports of uh, uh, report uh, of incidents where um, aircraft from other powers um, uh, fly into American airspace and um, North American jets from either Canada or United States intercept them immediately. Um, those are very very common. So the fact that there would be other incursions that aren't acted upon, even in the case of, you know, the, I think people talking about the Nimitz, where things were being seen for two weeks or more and nothing was being done about them, uh, and there, there aren't, weren't any reports on file about them, I find that hard to believe. Um, but there's no question that incursions of, of actual aircraft uh, are acted upon all the time. And I think that if there were uh, UAP flying in, in Canadian and North American airspace, uh, that they would be acted upon. I want to ask you, Chris, just in finishing up, do you have any advice, particularly for for Canadians listening, as to how they should report their own UFO sightings? Well, that's a really good question. I actually um, made a blog post about this. Where do you report your UFO? Um, And the problem is there really is no central way to report UFOs right now. Um, In the United States, for example, I think uh, some civilian organizations like MUFON might be the only place to report some UFOs. There's lots of online places, uh, uh, the National UFO Reporting Center in the United States, uh, 
uh, Peter Davenport, uh, you know, people can report things there. Um, and in Canada, uh, Transport Canada actually accepts UFO reports. Uh, the FAA, the United States, actually kind of accepts UFO reports, but not as not as uh, uh, as easily as as Transport Canada. The uh, civilians can report. Uh, I would say um, uh, there are a number of organizations. Certainly, the uh, Canadian UFO Survey accepts UFO reports. We get UFO reports all the time. Uh, people are reporting things on social media, on Facebook, on on Twitter, uh, on Instagram, and, and so forth. I think we even had a TikTok UFO report the other day. Uh, so there's many ways of reporting. It's very important to get the data. Um, and I, I will say that this data, this this mass of UFO reports, it, something is being done with them, rest assured. Uh, in fact, I donated um, um, almost all of my UFO uh, sighting reports to the University of Manitoba uh, over the past number of years, because I want that data and information to be available. Um, uh, there's a, a some uh, some rumor going around that it's embargoed and and uh, that's under closed wraps and so forth. That's not true. There's no such embargo. Uh, it's actually uh, unrestricted. The problem is that we have this little thing called a pandemic. Maybe somebody had noticed this. Uh, that has actually closed down archives uh, across Canada, and they actually haven't got around to doing much uh, uh, processing of this material. Uh, and you know, even Stanton Friedman's uh, files, uh, which were donated to the um, provincial archives of New Brunswick and are being administered by the University of New Brunswick, um, the archivists there have said it's going to take 15 years to properly process. Uh, the Friedman files, and it may take at least five to ten before anybody can really make head or tail of it, uh, a very massive uh, of information. Uh, my files were considerably less than that, um, but uh, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done about, uh, you know, uh, processing uh, funds like this. So it's it's going to take some effort. But my, my goal, and I just, I didn't just donate my UFO files, you can see behind me, so my bookcase, most of those uh, book uh, shelves used to have books on them. Um, in fact, you can't see the rest of my office. I have two or 3,000 books related to UFOs and uh, and other phenomena. That's all going to the university uh, as well to make it, uh, make the subject, uh, you know, easier to research by uh, serious researchers and at an academic level. So it's the type of thing that's going to take some time, but the idea is to make this information readily accessible to the general public and to serious researchers. And uh, you've got a book due out soon, uh, Canada's UFOs Declassified. Uh, when can we expect that and what can listeners expect from it as well? Um, what I've done for this most recent book, uh, Canada's UFOs Declassified, is uh, analyze the uh, the thousands of cases that are in the National Library of Canada from the National Research Council and the Royal Canadian Air Force, um, reported often by uh, Air Force officers and police themselves, and look at the most interesting cases uh, for you know uh, some insight into what people were really seeing and reporting in Canada. And looking at the official record, you get a different uh, perspective than what you get from a lot of the sensational. Uh, tabloid stuff, and yet there's some sensational cases in there. Cases where, for example, a RCMP officer uh, was driving uh, uh, through a uh, on a rainy night 
and a disc-shaped object uh, flew over his, his vehicle um, and caused quite a fright. And uh, he reported it duly to the National Research Council. And this was somebody who's a lot of experience. Uh, his reputation was on uh, on the line, and yet he you know, stood by what he had seen and made an official report. So we get cases like that in the files. And when you look at those cases, you think there's something to this, and it's worthwhile taking a, a closer look. As I understand it, the book is uh, going to be coming out this spring, uh, and uh, hopefully people get some insight into what, uh, what's been happening in Canada. But it's even though it's sort of parochial in Canada, there's going to be stuff in there that uh, uh, you've never heard of before, and uh, it will give you some perspective for uh, other countries around the world, certainly Britain and the United States. Look forward to the book coming out. And Chris, how can listeners follow you and your work? Well, I'm uh, certainly on Facebook. Uh, you look me up on Facebook. I'm also um, one of the admins for the uh, Facebook group UFO Updates, which was the continuation of the uh, uh, the uh, original chat room, then discussion group, uh, going back literally decades, uh, started by Errol Bruce Knapp uh, quite some time ago. Um, and uh, I'm also uh, an admin for a few other UFO groups. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, and Instagram at Ufology Research, and I have blogs uh, about uh, about my UFO research. Uh, Uforum.blogspot.com will get you to uh, my most recent thoughts about UFOs. I'll put all of those links in the description for the podcast as well. And of course, Chris, look forward to the book coming out in the coming months. It's been great speaking with you, and look forward to hosting you again sometime down the line. Great, thanks. Nice talking with you. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little more. Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. And I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was red. And I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And I think I should because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think I'd be, I guess you and me and us and we and him and her and that and she and that thing over there and what's that, Jake?
Consider your life, consider your life, consider your life. 